All right, we're in John chapter 14, and we're going to go halfway through, and then next week cover the rest of the chapter. This passage we're going to look at tonight is often used in funeral sermons. I've used it myself probably hundreds of times, and that's not an exaggeration. And, and it makes sense because this is really Jesus comforting His disciples at the moment when they are most upset. Because if you know the Gospels, you know Jesus tried to tell His disciples over and over again what was coming. The Son of Man will be arrested. The Son of Man will be tried, convicted, beaten, killed. And we need to cut the disciples some slack. When you read the Gospels, it's sometimes easy to think, well, were these guys just intentionally dumb? But Jesus said so many things that were so far above them that they didn't know when He was being literal and when He was being metaphorical. They didn't know what He meant half the time at least. But here, in what He said to them, and we're going to review that in just a moment, very clearly in chapter 13, they were both sorrowful and afraid. And we tend to forget what the reasons why they were sorrowful and the reasons why they were afraid. And we also, we don't really pay close enough attention to the words Jesus said to comfort them. Because uh, our focus on the, when we read this passage is usually on two things. We, we, we think about how He said, I go there to prepare a place for you. So we think about heaven. And then we, we focus on the word mansion, which if you grew up in, a, in reading the King James Version of the Bible, we'll get to that. The word mansion is very big in verse 2. Uh, some people will even point out, well, you know, Jesus was a carpenter in this life, so He's up there building a mansion for you by hand. All right, so we'll talk about that in just a moment and whether that's really what this means. But to review, last week, Jesus said three things in chapter 13, three things that have them upset, that have them afraid. He said, first of all, one of you is going to betray me. One of you will turn me in. Turn His back on me and hurt me. Secondly, he said, I'm going somewhere and you can't go with me. Where I am going, you cannot follow. This was upsetting because they had been with him for three years or so. Night and day, wherever he went, they went. And now suddenly he's saying, I'm going somewhere and you can't go with me. And then third, he has point blank told Peter in front of everyone, tonight before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. So they are upset. They don't know what to do. So Jesus begins by saying in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now I want to just stop and, and point out, if you ever had a fear in your heart that God did not care about how you felt, if there's ever been an emotion in you that says, you know, I'm really anxious about this issue right now. I'm really afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow. But I shouldn't bother God with this because God's got bigger things on His mind. God's got strife in the Middle East, and God's got starving people in Africa, and God's got uh, people being persecuted in China. And my little anxiety over my surgery in the morning, or my, my worry about my son and his marriage, or my problem with my own finances, though that's too little for, for me to trouble God with. If you've ever thought that way, this is a good lesson to you. Jesus doesn't just care about the quote-unquote big things. Because remember, nothing physical was about to happen to these, to these 11 men. They were going to get away scot-free. But Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He is concerned 
about their hearts. God cares about your heart. He cares about the emotions you go through. Share those with him. Don't be, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Just think about it the way when you were raising kids, if you had kids, uh, when they were small, would you want them to come to you and say, mom, dad, this is what I'm worried about. Absolutely. You wanted to be part of their lives. God wants to be part of yours. That's good news. Um, and also, you need to note when he says, believe in God, believe also in me. He doesn't just mean believe that I exist. That's actually a word that means trust. You trust in God, now trust in me in the same way. Which is an audacious thing to say unless Jesus is God, which we know He is. Jesus is saying, put the same kind of trust in me that you put in your heavenly Father above, because He and I are one. And again, to go back to that parenting analogy, when you were a kid, your life was better the more, if you had parents anything like mine, like most of us, if you had good parents, your life got better to the degree you trusted your parents. Can we agree on that? If you had a good mom and dad, your life was better to the same degree you trusted them. So if you were willing to tell them your problems and ask their advice, your life got better. If you were willing to do what they said, obey their rules and, and follow their commands, your life got better. It's when you started to veer away from mom and dad that life got worse. And, and what Jesus is saying here, learn to trust me like that. Your life will get better. You'll see that your fears come to nothing. All right, so in verse 2, he says, famous verse, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, if you grew up in the King James, like most of us did, there are a couple of differences between the King James and virtually every other, all the modern translations when it comes to verse 2. The first one is, it's not a question in the King James. In the King James, he says, in my father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Now, I can say, with my limited exp experience in the Greek language, which basically ended when I graduated seminary in 1996, very limited experience. That's one of those issues that it could have, the King James could be right, the modern translations could be right. I'm not going to stand in, on a, and, and fight and die on a hill whether Jesus was asking a question or making a statement. That's one of those, they were making their best guess. You have to remember, the original text of the scriptures had no punctuation. They just didn't do that. So they had to guess. Is he saying this as a question or is he saying as a statement? Don't make a big deal out of that. The one po most people notice, though, is in the King James Version is the word mansions. In my father's house, there are many mansions. Now, in Greek, it's the word monet. Monet literally means dwelling place. That's all it means. When the King James Version was being translated, the word mansion in English back then in the 1500s meant a place to stay. That's all it meant. It was only in the last 100, 200 years that the word mansion became the word we apply to a huge, palatial, multi-roomed structure that rich people buy and live in. But we caught that meaning because really modern translations didn't really come into vogue until the last, I don't know, 70, 80 years at best. So most people, most Christians, once that word mansion became 
of the word we used for a big expensive house, people were still reading the King James Version for another hundred years. And that's where we get songs like, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop, right? And it's a fine song. But that leads a lot of people to believe that what Jesus is promising us is that we'll all have our own mansion in glory. Now, to go back to that Greek word Monet, it's found a lot of different places in the Bible. Let me show you another place that it's found in this very chapter. We'll look at it next week. Chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. That word make our home is the word Monet. So again, it just means a place to stay. It could be a tent. It could be a room built onto a house. In fact, I think that's what Jesus was saying. Remember, in the ancient world, houses were, you know, for most people, for all but the super rich, a house was one or two rooms max. You had your room where the family slept and ate, and then your room where you kept the animals at night. Or guests slept there if guests came over. But if little boy or little girl grew up, got married, and wanted to start a family, and couldn't afford to buy a house of their own, which was usually the case, very poor society, dad would build a, another room onto the house. He might put it up on the roof, or he might build it onto the side, depending on how much land he possessed. And that, that's essentially what I believe Jesus is saying. My dad's going to build a room on the house for you. There's going to be room in the house for you. Don't worry, you'll have a spot. There will be room for you. Now, I have heard people say, and this is less and less now, because more and more people are reading more modern translations of the scriptures. But growing up, I used to hear people say whenever they would read the NIV or the NAS or whatever, and it would say in my father's house are many rooms, they'd say, oh, I don't like that. Don't take my mansion away from me. You ever heard anybody say that? Don't take, I'm counting on that mansion. Don't take that mansion away from me. And I'm not mocking them. Their faith is sincere. But to that, I say this. Trust me. You would rather live in a house with him than in a mansion by yourself. That's what matters. This is all metaphorical anyway. We're not, we're not going to live in a house with 10 jillion rooms in, in the afterlife. We're not living in, an, in, a, in a cosmic apartment complex. Thank the Lord. It's just saying there's a room in the presence of the Father, for you. I promise you. I'm going away, but there's a place for you. Don't worry. We're not being parted forever. That's what Jesus is saying. So if you've got your heart set on a big, glorious mansion, I think when you get there, you're going to find out God has something far, far better than that in mind. Now let's talk about that term, prepare a place. Again, uh, a lot of preachers have talked about that in terms of Jesus using his skills as a carpenter to physically build you a, a, a dwelling in the heavenly city. And I don't think at all that's what it's talking about. Remember, Jesus has just said, and I know it's a different chapter, but chapters didn't exist when John wrote this. This was all one story. Jesus has just said, I'm going somewhere and you can't, you can't come with me. Now he says, I'm going there because I want to prepare a place for you. Where, where is there? When he, when he said, I'm going somewhere and you can't go with me, what was he talking about? He's talking about the cross. 
Jesus prepared a place for us in the Father's presence by dying for our sins. That's what he's talking about when he says, I go there to prepare a place for you. I am going to the cross so that you can be saved. I am going to atone for the sins you've committed because you can't do it. I'm going to do what you can't do so you can be with me and the Father forever. And that ought to make you say amen. Now, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So the thing for me as a preacher and as a pastor that frustrates me is we focus so much attention on verse 2, we ignore verse 3. And verse 3 is every bit as exciting because Jesus says He's coming back for us. And that ought to make us just as glad. He is coming back for us. We will not be left behind. This world is not as good as it gets. He is coming back to reign over a new earth where we will live. And that's our hope. I'm going to talk about that, Lord willing, in a couple of Sundays when we, when we talk about a doxology from the book of Revelation, how uh, the hope that we have in Christ, the ultimate hope that we have in Christ is living in a world where Jesus is king. And, and that's what we have to look forward to. Now verse 4, And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, there's a couple of things in that, in those two verses that kind of make me smile. Maybe, maybe it wasn't intended to be humorous, and it probably wasn't. But first of all, you may remember last week, Peter had just asked Jesus when he said, I'm going somewhere and you can't go with me. Peter said, well, Lord, where are you going? Well, now he's answering the question. He says, well, you know the way I'm going. You know the way that I'm headed. But what I really, want, what I really find interesting is Thomas. See, one of the things about the book of John, John is very different than the other three Gospels. I don't know if anybody's ever told you this. Some of you know this, uh, but I'm just going to say it now. Bible scholars have a term for Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. They call them the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, synoptic. I just won spelling bee. So um, synoptic means same I. It, it, it's a word that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell most of the same stories and share a lot of the same quotes. They just have a few variations in their storytelling method and, and a few different details. John comes along and John tells almost completely different stories, almost completely different teachings. It, it's, it's like God said, you know, after 30 or 40 years after these first three were written, there's a lot more story to tell. John, get after it. And John does. And one of the differences between John and the synoptic Gospels is he tells us a lot more about the disciples that we otherwise know nothing about. Because if all you have is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, most of what you hear, most of the stories you hear are about who? Peter. Peter's the main guy. And to a lesser extent, James and John. But in the Gospel of John, we hear about different... We're going to hear tonight about Thomas and Philip. We hear nothing about them, virtually nothing about them, in the other Gospels. So here's an example. Thomas saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Here's what else we know about Thomas. From John, in John eleven sixteen, Jesus has just been told that Lazarus has died in Bethany. And Jesus says, okay, let's go. And the disciples argue with him, Lord, why would we go now? You can't save him. He's already dead. And besides, don't the Pharisees, don't the religious leaders there in Bethany want to kill you? 
And Jesus says, I don't care, I'm going anyway. And Thomas in John eleven sixteen 16 says, let us go also that we may die with him. So, and you combine that with this statement and the most famous story about Thomas, about how he saw Jesus, or he didn't see Jesus resurrected and refused to believe it. And people have formed an opinion, which I think there's reason for, that says Thomas, out of all the disciples, was the most realistic, maybe the most cynical. But certainly he was the most, hey, let's, let's keep our feet on the ground. Let's stay practical here. And right now he's asking a very practical question. And sometimes you have to love people like that. Because while the rest of us just hear something and walk on, he's the one that says, no, 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 I want some details. And that's what he says to Jesus. Lord, you need to give me a roadmap because I, I don't know how to get to you. I don't even know where you're going. And that brings up one of the great verses in all the scriptures, verse six. Jesus said to him, I am the way. You want a roadmap, Thomas? Look at me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That one statement, if, if it was the only time Jesus said anything like this, it would be enough. It wasn't, but there, there are actually seven of those big I am statements in the Gospel of John alone. But just that one statement, I am the way. There's no other way to the Father. And by the way, you may not have realized this. We get, we get this in the book of Acts. During that first generation of Christians, especially within the nation of Israel, no one used the term Christian. That didn't happen until the faith reached Gentile territory in Antioch. At the beginning, it was called the way. So in the first century, if you were in the Jerusalem church, you wouldn't have said, hey, me and all the other Christians, we meet over here at Peter's house or whoever's. You would have said, we're part of the way. And Jesus was the way. He is the truth. Jesus alone spoke the true words of God because he was God. Think about all the different rabbis who existed in those days. All these people who were, who were uh, leading disciples around and telling them, this is what the Bible says, and this is what Torah means, and this is what... And Jesus comes along and says, here's what I say. And remember what people would say? What's this new teaching? And with authority. He doesn't call on anyone else's authority. He just declares it himself. Why? Because he is the truth. And the truth will set you free. And then he is... The life. The, the one problem that we know humanity will never solve on its own is the problem of death. We may cure all kinds of diseases, but others, new ones will crop up. We're seeing that daily. But Jesus faced death. He overcame death through His resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have to do some real mental gymnastics and really ignore what Jesus is saying here to get any other idea than that Jesus declared himself to be the only Savior. That, that is crystal clear. And, and we've talked about it quite a lot lately, just happened to be uh, in what I was preaching, how our society increasingly rejects that idea as narrow. They'll even say, well, it's that kind of exclusive mentality that causes all the violence and division in our world today. But you know what? The way I think we should see Jesus' statement, we should see it as a very courageous, selfless statement. This is not a man standing in front of an auditorium 
of people cheering his name. This is not a man building a following. We see, we see uh, dictators and tyrants doing this kind of thing all the time. Think about Adolf Hitler in Nuremberg and standing in front of all those adoring people and declaring himself to be this great person. This is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is speaking to 11 people in a little room hidden from the authorities just hours before he knows he's going to be arrested and killed. So he is not saying this because it's going to make him any, any richer or any safer or give him any more power. He is saying it because he's saying, I'm the one who can help you. Bring your problems to me. Don't trust anyone else with them because I'm the way. This is the opposite of what all other human leaders do. Other human leaders, and let's face it, humans, period, do everything we can to try to take as little responsibility as we can. That's one of the things I noticed about myself when I first became a father. I didn't know how selfish I was until that baby was calling out in the middle of the night. And I became the best actor in the world, right? Because I could portray a sleeping man uh, better than, you know, Lawrence Olivier, Daniel Day-Lewis. I, you know, I was convincing and carried Toddle down the hallway and get that baby, right? And I'm just, you know, they're doing my part. We, we love to shed responsibility if we can. Oh, I, I, I don't, that's not my problem. That's not my job. Go, go talk to that guy down the hall. That, that's his job. What do our, our political leaders do when there's a recession? Well, it's, it's not me. It's the policies the previous guy did. It, it, you know, it, it's, not, it's not what I've done. It's, it's what I inherited. It's always someone else's fault. Jesus steps up and says, I'll take responsibility. I'll take responsibility even for your sin. The buck stops with me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Think about that statement for a minute. No, no human leader says that today. They want the best and the brightest. They want the people who can fund their campaign. Jesus says, come to me if you're at the end of your rope. I'll take you. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'll take responsibility. I will fix this broken world. I will save your souls. And then verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, I know this isn't true, but in my mind, I picture Jesus slapping his forehead when Philip says that. Because this is one of those many times when one of the disciples said something that just clearly indicated he hadn't heard anything Jesus had said. Now, I know some of y'all know this, but my daughter is a, a high school teacher uh, now, and she comes home with all kinds of funny stories that are similar to this, where she will give very precise instructions. And as soon as she's ready to move on, a kid will raise his hand and say, ask a question that reveals that he hasn't heard a thing that she said. In fact, I can share this story with you. I don't think she'll mind because she doesn't name the kid, but uh, she has a young man in her class right now. She's a Japanese teacher. She has a young man in her class right now who is convinced that she's really Japanese. <laughs> And she said, but look at me. I don't look Japanese. And he says, yeah, but you speak it. He, she said, well, I, I studied it at school. And he, goes, he says, well, who would do that? 
So uh, I'm going off on a tangent here, clearly. Um, um, Carrie told her, and I think this is a great idea, she should Photoshop a picture of herself with a couple of elderly Japanese people and just you know put it on her desk. Don't say anything about it. Just put it on her desk and people will see. Anyway. So I think about that and I think about Jesus having to put up with the disciples and I think it would have been the same if it were 11 of us. We would have been sitting there and Jesus would have said these amazing things and then we would have said, yeah, but you know, show us God. That's what we really want to see. And Jesus says, verse 9, oh, by the way, a little something about Philip, just so you know, because again, this is we don't have much information about him anywhere else. Uh, Philip was from the town of Bethsaida in Galilee, which is right on the coast of Galilee. We believe that's where uh, Peter and Andrew were from as well. Um, he brought Nathanael to meet Jesus. That's how Nathanael met the Lord. Um, he was, we also read about him in the Gospel of John. A group of Greeks come to Philip and say, we want to see Jesus. Philip brings them there. Uh, the speculation is that because he came from Bethsaida, and that was a place with a lot of Gentiles, maybe they knew him from back home but he still is quite clueless at this point. And so what Jesus says to him in verse 9 is, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And right there, I mean, verse 6 and verse 9 are two verses that if, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was, then your only logical conclusion is to say, reject this guy entirely. Because good, righteous people don't say those kinds of things unless they're telling the truth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let me just put it this way. If I or any other preacher says something like that, fire that person immediately. Get them out of your church. That, that should not be said by any human being. Jesus says it because it's true. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And again, we can't necessarily hear the tone of voice, but the way John writes that, it indicates that Jesus was frustrated. I've been with you all this time. Haven't you figured it out by now that I'm not just Jesus of Nazareth? That I have always been. That I am, I am the one you've been praying to all this time. I came to you. And, and this has been a controversy within Christianity and toward Christianity ever since. Even in the first century, there was the heresy of Gnosticism. You've probably heard that. Part of that, a big part of that heresy was the idea that, well, you know, Jesus was clearly divine, but there's no way he was really human because no God would take on human flesh. And then later on through history, you had various other movements that said, well, Jesus was human, but we just don't think he was divine. There was one that even said, well, Jesus was divine eventually, but only after God said, you've done a good job. I think I'll adopt you. I'm not making that up. It was called adoptionism. In our own era, in the modern era, there's been a lot of studies that attempted to get to the bottom of who the quote-unquote real Jesus was. And it's always, always an attempt to make Jesus just a man, a very good man, a very brave man, a revolutionary, a, a, a powerful teacher, but just a man. 
But he was so much more than that. I, I want to read to you something else that John wrote. I think I put it in your notes. It's the beginning of John's first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is how John's first letter begins. These are the first words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. What is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's saying the God you've always heard of, the God you were trained to believe in, the God who created you, I saw him with my own eyes. I I heard his voice. I touched him with my hands. I put my arm around his shoulders. We you know, punched each other in the ribs. We, we hugged each other. He was real. He was Jesus. And He was God. See, the good news, this is such good news, so much, so much good news in the Scriptures, but one of the good news, one aspect of the good news is that the God who exists, the real God, not the one made up by human beings, side note, if you've ever studied the gods in any other religion, isn't that terrifying to think that we could be ruled by a God such as that. But the real God came to this world and put on human flesh and walked around among us so that we could actually see what He's like. You ever had the experience of knowing someone from afar and having an idea about them, but then you get to know them and they're not quite who you thought they were? You actually like them a little more up close than you did from a distance. Maybe you thought they were stuck up. Find out they're quite nice. God came near and we found out, oh, well, that's who I want God to be. I I can't think of a better God than the one who is. Because Jesus walked among us and we saw that He's way more loving, way more merciful. He's way more joyful, uh, way more accepting. He's way more lots of things that we wanted to believe but didn't dare hope. And that's Jesus. Can you imagine a better God? Because I can't. And then we get to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And this is one of those truly, truly, I say to you. Again, King James, verily, verily, I say unto you. And I find this interesting, you might too. In Greek, it just, it's just the words, amen, amen. That's, that's how it's written by John himself. And it, when Jesus says that, he's essentially saying, listen up, this is important. I want you to hear this. And then he says something that just blows our minds. Greater works than I do will you do. Now, how is that possible? How can you and I possibly do the things Jesus did when He, or greater things than He did, when He walked on water, when He fed thousands of people with with one little boy's lunch, when He stilled a storm, when He raised the dead? I don't know anybody in this room that's ever done any of those things. And I know that I haven't. So how can Jesus say that? And I think the only answer is that He's not, first of all, it helps us to know that He's, addressing the group and not individuals. He's not saying, you, John, you'll do greater things than I ever did. You, Peter, you'll do greater things than I ever did. Even you, uh, you know, second James, we don't know anything else about. James the lesser, 
as we call him now. You're going to do greater things than I ever did. He doesn't say that. He says, you plural, y'all will do greater things than I ever did. Because he's talking not in terms of quality, but quantity. I mean, just as an illustration of what we're talking about, Acts chapter 1, when Jesus leaves the earth, you know how many followers of Jesus there were? Does anybody remember? 120. There were 120 people. That's it. That is it. A few days later, Peter, of all people, Peter, preaches the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people get saved. What Jesus is saying is, you're going you're gonna to multiply. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and, and there's going to be so many of you spread all over the world that you're going to do things that I couldn't individually do. Because even though I'm God in human flesh, I can only be in one place. But when I'm in your, in your bodies in the Holy Spirit, I'll be all over the world with the same power. It doesn't mean you and I will raise the dead or heal people, although if God chooses to give us that ability, we will. But just simply living out the Christian faith and loving people in His name and sharing the gospel, millions are saved when only a few hundred were really saved in Jesus' own lifetime. That's what He's saying. And then in verse 13, here's another one of those dangerous verses. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And yes, the health and wealth guys just love that verse. But are they right? Are they right to say, hey, all you got to do is put the name of Jesus on your prayer and you can have anything you want. Well, if they're right, then there's a whole lot of the rest of the scriptures that we have to explain. Why then did the apostles suffer so much? Why did Paul, for instance, have this thorn in his flesh and he prayed for God to remove it and God never did? Did he just forget to say in Jesus' name? Is, is that the problem? Why, why, do any, why did any of those disciples have to die a martyr's death? Did they forget to pray in Jesus' name that the Lord would protect them from the suffering they were experiencing? No. The name in Jesus' name, that's not a magic formula. God's not a genie. That's not the version of hocus pocus that makes him do whatever you want him to do. Can we just think logically for a minute about what a terrible God he would be if we could manipulate him that easily? Even the best person in this room, whoever that might be, I know it's not me, even the best person in this room would convince or manipulate God in doing some really terrible things because we're all selfish at heart if he was a God so easily manipulated. But he's not. He's not saying, if you just say in my name, then I have to do what you say. In that world, not just in Scripture, in that world, a person's name wasn't just what they were called by their father. A person's name was their reputation. It was their character. This is why the names of God are so important. This is why the third commandment matters. Do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. Because when you defame the name of God, you're defaming His character. You're saying God is less than He claims to be. A person's name was their character. Which 
helps explain also why Jesus kept giving people new names. And we see it in other parts of the scripture too. The name mattered because the name reflected the character. So what is Jesus saying then when he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. He's saying, when you pray the way that I would, when you pray according to my character, when you pray in a way that reflects the heart of my, uh, of my, my heart, the, the heart of God, when you pray in the will of God, you get what you ask for. And that doesn't mean, I don't mean to complicate prayer for you. It doesn't mean that when you're hurting, when you're scared, when you're worried, when you don't know what to do, you can't just come to God and declare the things that are on your heart because He commands us to do that in the Psalms. But the promise to give us anything we ask is specifically tied to asking in His name. So again, if, if tonight I go home and my wife is running 105 fever, let's say, and I pray for her healing, I'm supposed to pray for that, but I'm not guaranteed that she's going to get well in an hour. But when I pray something that I know is in the heart of God, then I know I'm going to get it. And you might say, well, what good is that? Prayer, the real re meaning of prayer is not to change God as if we want to change God. The real meaning of prayer is to change us, Amen. to get onto His wavelengths, to participate in His work, to accomplish eternally significant things on earth. And yes, sometimes we go to him not knowing whether it's his will or not. That's why we say, Lord, if it's your will, please heal my wife. Lord, if it's your will, please let me get this job. Lord, if it's your will, please uh, help me to in this next conversation that, that I would persuade this person to go the right way. And we don't know what God's going to do. We always know he does what we would ask if we knew what he knows. And sometimes we see miracles from those kinds of prayers. But when we come into God's presence with a heart that says, Lord, I want to pray according to your name. That's when we see amazing things happen. I have a, an older pastor who's long retired that taught me something a long, long time ago that I sometimes use to remind myself of this. Because let's face it, we can get formulaic in our prayers, can't we? We can get very routine where we're just saying words. Same old words. Lord, please forgive me for the many ways I've failed you. Bless all those hurting. Bless our missionaries. In Jesus' name, amen. And we feel like we've prayed. What my, my pastor friend uh, suggested was, instead of saying in Jesus' name, amen, to remind yourself what that phrase means. He said, I pray, Lord, in the name and for the sake and by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Why? doesn't make the prayer any more effective, but it's a reminder to the person praying that I'm praying this because I think it's something you want to give. That's in your name. I'm praying this for your sake because I think it will advance your work. I think it'll glorify you. And I'm praying it by His blood because I have no other right to pray except by His blood. My point in saying all of that is I think what Jesus is saying when He says, if you pray anything in my name, what he's promising is we have the chance to participate in God's work through prayer. And that is a glorious thing. The, the more we know him, the better we get at it. The, more, the closer we get to him through studying the word, through worshiping, through serving, the better we get at knowing, I know this is something God wants me to pray for. And I'm going to pray it in his name because it is according to his character. I don't know how he's going to answer it, but I know he will.
Isn't it good to know that God hears us? Not because of us, but because of who He is. All right, let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful for Your Word. Grateful, Lord, for Your promises. We're grateful that, again, like we said last week, in the most stressful night of your life, you were thinking not just about comforting your disciples, you were thinking ahead. You were equipping them for what was going to happen when you were gone. You were making sure they knew what to do. And I thank you that when we pray, you hear and you answer. So I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to pray to you and that we would give you everything that's on our heart, but that we also would seek your will in prayer. Lord, make us the kind of people who participate alongside you in your work through prayer. For it's in your name and for your sake and by the blood of Jesus we pray. Amen.